Watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Collins. Yes! Yes, it's me. It's me. I'm going to explain this. It's me. It is still me. Keep clapping. Back to the explanation of why I have this thing on my face. How would we know that you wanted an explanation about what this thing is doing on my face if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to fellow, my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. And yes, you're, again, you're saying, why is this thing on my face? Well, I, as it says there on the screen, I stabbed myself. I was eating very excitedly last night. And one thing led to another. I don't think anyone's proud of this. Certainly not me. Uh, but I am okay. Um, it does not appear to require stitches. Um, but yeah, I'm a grown man that stabbed myself with a knife, uh, but I'm okay. It was accidental. I did not mean to do it. Uh, and yes, I'm doing well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is of course a muddied waters media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, anchor, anchor.fm slash muddied waters. Check us out on Twitter, on Periscope, on iTunes, on Google play, on Twitch, uh, check us out on all the different podcasting apps, and of course, check us out on Float, float.app slash muddiedwatersmedia, and then go to our website, muddiedwatersmedia.com. However you are watching this or listening to it, be sure to like, follow, press the button to say I like it, whatever that is, five-starring us, whatever thing shows approval and or following on whatever your social media 
that you're using or podcast that you're using is, be sure to do that right now. And if it's on YouTube, hit the bell. If there is a bell there, hit the bell next to subscribe. That way your phone will blow up with notifications like mine did as soon as I went live. Every time we go live, we want your phone to just blow up. So be sure to do that and share this right now. The very last thing that we want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long Libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. So share this right now. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest-growing waffle-related caucus in this or any other party in any other country in this entire godforsaken planet. If you want to become a member of the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, be sure to join today by going to face the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. And if you want to become an official, official member, uh, the only way to do that is to buy a button. They're only $5. Just go to muddywatersmedia.com. Go to click on the store icon in the menu, and then uh, you'll see the buttons there. That's one of the many things you can buy at the Muddy Waters Media store to become an official credentialed, seated member of the fastest-growing, actually one of the fastest-growing caucuses in the party period, but the fastest-growing waffle-related caucus, bar none. Uh, This episode, of course, is also brought to you by the Gravy King. And this episode is brought to you by Nug of Knowledge, smokable CBD products. That's what we're doing now. We're smoking our CBD products. We've gone past oil. Now we're smoking. Uh, Nug of Knowledge is not like your typical uh, CBD supplier. A portion of all profits go to help end the disastrous war on drugs. They have a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products to veterans and people with disabilities who cannot afford these natural remedies on their own. Many who say who use it say that it helps them with joint pain, stress relief, or even a much-needed pick-me-up. And of course, go to nugofknowledge.com. And if you'd like to buy some, you can use checkout code SPIKE for 10% off. This episode is also brought to you by a new sponsor, Joe Soloski, who is running for Pennsylvania governor. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania's success. Uh, if you want to find out how you can help him in his run as a libertarian for to be the next and first libertarian governor of Pennsylvania, go to joesoloski.com. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. I think I spelled that right. Uh, and check that out. And finally, of course, this episode and all episodes of anything from Money Waters Media will always come to you from Chris Reynolds, personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you live in Florida or if you are in Florida and you find yourself personally injured, I have some fantastic news for you. I'm very sorry about what happened that caused you personal injury, but the good news is that if you contact Chris Reynolds, he'll probably be able to get you money. I can't guarantee that, but he will definitely try his darndest. Uh, If you go to chrisreynoldslaw.com, he is one of the smartest attorneys I know. Great guy, and he will get you the money that you need. chrisreynoldslaw.com. I cannot guarantee he'll get you the money, but I'd like to think he would because he's a good attorney. I need to word this better. But again, personally injured, Chris Reynolds attorney. He'll help you, chrisreynoldslaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I, Joe Davi. Check him out on his Facebook. Go to his uh, SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography today. It's like 25 bucks. Some of the greatest music you'll ever hear. Be sure to do that. Thank you so much, Mr. Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Le Bleu for this delicious ultra pure water that apparently last uh last yesterday last night we found out we don't know where this is made but it's good 
It tastes good. It's, it says it's ultra pure, made in the USA, and kosher, and BPA-free, like me. I don't know if I'm BPA-free. I assume I am. I'm not sure what BPA is. But I am non-carbonated. Anyway, thank you so much for the water. That is delicious water. I don't care where they make it. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and as always. Folks, we're doing things a little bit different tonight. Um, I actually interviewed my guest earlier, so I'm about to play a pre-recorded uh, interview that I did with him earlier in the day. I will be live, though, because this is live. I am live right now. In fact, just to prove that I'm live, I'm going to go to the comments right now and respond to someone. Uh, Chris Wren says, looks like Spike was personally injured. Maybe he should hire Chris Reynolds. Yeah, but I'd be suing myself, and also I'm not in Florida. So, yeah, that kind of, I mean, it's solid theory, but yes. So this is proof that I'm live right now. But uh, we will be, I'm going to be playing my interview uh, with uh, a really, really cool guy, Doug Bondo with the Cato Institute. We had a really good conversation. Uh, so be sure to check that out. Uh, I'll be playing that shortly. I will be responding to your comments and questions as we go live or as we play it live. Uh, and then once it's over, I will be back. I'll answer some of your questions and then we will be closing out. So, uh, no, uh, not hitting myself with a hot dog yet. We didn't get enough money. We are still $900 away, actually $898 away from the opportunity for me to hit myself with a salmon hot dog. If you want to know more, donate $898 and you'll get to see it in real time. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Doug Bondo. You'll want to check this out. This was a lot of fun. Folks, my guest tonight is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. Uh, he worked as a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, and uh, as the editor of the political magazine Inquiry, he write, writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune Magazine, National Interest, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, as well as Antiwar.com. Uh, his works can be found at Cato.org. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans with Without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest, Mr. Doug Bondo. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to come on. I, I, this is a very interesting subject we're going to be talking about with the kind of creeping authoritarianism that's happening around the country, and I'm really, uh, really excited to get your take on that. No, it's quite a time. I mean, I, I've been in Washington for more than 40 years, and we've never quite had a time like this one. It's, it's uh, quite a challenge for all of us, especially people interested in the, in the freedom ideology. Absolutely. And folks, be sure to comment with your questions and thoughts. And uh, I will, this is being pre-recorded, but I will be there live to tell you whether you are right or wrong. Now, Doug, before we get started, I always ask my guests whenever they come on and they're a specialist in something, what is it that got you into wanting to be a specialist in civil liberties and foreign policy? Was it, was it a, a aha moment or sort of a gradual evolution of time? Tell us the, the Bondo Genesis story. Well, to some degree, I'm a generalist, and those are areas of particular fascination. Now, I have a bachelor's in economics. I have a law degree. I went into the Reagan administration focusing much more on economic issues. I worked for Ronald Reagan's or primary, his domestic policy advisor, Martin Anderson, who I met actually while I was in Stanford Law School. He was at the Hoover Institution. So I spent my early years focused on domestic issues, economics, regulation, legal issues, but I always had an interest in international issues. My father was in the Air Force. I spent uh, you know, a, a part of my youth in the United Kingdom and Germany. 
I found those interest issues very interesting. So I started writing about them. And just over time, quite frankly, I came to the point where, you know, I, I, in the 1980s, 1990s, I'd look back and say, I was writing about these same issues when I was in law school on the domestic side, minimum wage, social security, budget deficits. Right. But international right, right. issues were changing and they're you know, incredibly fascinating. You know, follow the Berlin Wall, changes in other countries, collapse of communism. Uh, so that really pushed me much more towards the international issues. The civil liberties kind of carry, you know, uh, my interest in the law gets into that as well as some of it's international. I do international religious persecution. You know, it allows me to get that international flavor, but also, you know, liberties for folks as well. Well, and that's actually one of the things we're going to be talking about is religious persecution around the world. Now, uh, to preface this, I, I wish I could say that this was going to be a boring episode, that we were going to talk about how things are just kind of staying the same, maybe getting a little bit better. But unfortunately, and, and you probably didn't need to see a report to know this uh, for the folks at home, but unfortunately, things are kind of slowly getting worse around the world. Uh, according to the most recent 2021 report by Freedom House, uh, America is uh, less free uh, or actually the world is less free than it has been uh, in quite some time. In 2005, uh, there were 89 countries that were considered mostly free um, or free. Uh, that's gone down to 82. And the number of countries uh, that are considered either partly free or not free has continued to steadily steadily rise. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the religious persecution aspect of that. The first one is something that a lot of people I don't think have heard about. We've heard about the Rohingya. Is it, am, I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Rohingya in in, in Myanmar, uh, the uh, the Uyghur Muslims in China. We've heard a lot about this, um, but we haven't heard about the Jehovah's Witnesses. So in in Russia, uh, back in 2017, Jehovah's Witnesses were declared an extremist religious group, but that didn't really start to heat up until a few weeks ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that and wh where that started? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a small, in a sense, Christian offshoot. I mean, they're not Orthodox Christian, but they spring, you know, they, they take the Bible as their authority. They have some doctrines right. that don't fit with uh, kind of majority Christians. Nevertheless, they're very much part of the Western experience. I mean, I have relatives who are Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they're relatively small. I mean, they're kind of famous for uh, you know, going door to door. I mean, they're very much uh, evangelized. They're, they try to you know, spread their faith. You know, and these are folks who were famous in the legal sense because back in the you know, 1940s, there were two Supreme Court cases because the, they, what they do is they respect state authority, but they refuse to, in a sense, recognize it. That is, right. they, they won't be in a position where it appears they're worshiping it, so they wouldn't do the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, what their view is they would, don't interfere with anybody else, but for them, that's venerating, you know, it's kind of giving almost kind of you know, a worship towards you know, a state symbol. So there right, were two right. Supreme Court cases. The first said they had to do it. The second, you know, thankfully said the Constitution protected them. So, so they're a fairly minor sect, you know, but they've tended to be victimized overseas. And for some reason, Russia has really gotten after them. And my assessment, I mean, most of the countries that persecute either are, frankly, Islamic, you know, majority Islamic, or they're authoritarian former communist. That is right. that they have that background of state control. In Russia is one of the few, it has that, but it's also Orthodox Church tends to be very closely identified with state authority. So I think the, what happened here is to some degree, it's simply they acknowledge Protestantism, Catholicism as being, you know, kind of respected religions, 
but Jehovah's Witnesses just don't fit. I mean, they you know, their resistance to kind of symbolism of the state, you know, their tendency to evangelize, and they've been designated essentially as a terrorist group. It's utterly crazy that you know these are. I mean, I I don't mean it in an offensive way. They're harmless. I mean, these are not right. people who want to undermine the state. They have no interest in bothering anybody, and they have been just victimized, viciously victimized. You know, where they're arrested, their buildings have been taken, the church is, you know, officially has been closed down, they right. meet, they're subject to penalties. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's gotten worse in recent years. So you're saying they've been essentially labeled in a, a, a terrorist group. Has there ever, I mean, I think I probably would know the answer to this already. Has there been an actual incident of Jehovah's Witnesses engaging in or threatening any terrorism? Or is oh, no, this, no. And, I, and I guess a follow-up question to that is, you mentioned both the aspect of that, you know, this is a former communist state and there's that aspect of controlling religions uh, and, 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 and sort of suppressing religions, but also the, the fact that they're from the Orthodox Church. Which of these would you say is more of a factor in this or, or is it really kind of a combination of the two? I, I think they both fit. That is the authoritarian nature of the Russian system really does. I mean, you can, you can argue it goes back to Imperial Russia, then through the Soviet Union. But right. there's a history, you know, Russia's democratic moment was very short under Boris Yeltsin. You know, and yeah. then Putin took over and, and really moved much more in an authoritarian direction. So that's all there. So I think that's the base. And I do think the Orthodox Church, for example, does not like those who evangelize. And that's happened with the Greek Orthodox Church as well. I mean, look, what happens in these countries is nothing compared to Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, I mean, the country, Iran, I mean, countries like that are just vicious what they do. You know, the right. Orthodox, they, but they do p- tend to penalize people who are going out and evangelizing, proselytizing. And the you know, Jehovah's Witnesses have a reputation for that. So my guess is that the two have kind of come together. Uh, there was a, a Supreme Court case in R- Russia that said they fell within these provisions of being kind of a dangerous group. And at that point, I mean, the, the full power of the state went upon them. Putin at one point wondered why this is all happening. And I think it does give a sense that while he's broadly you know, in charge, he's the, he's the top guy. I mean, a lot of stuff happens there, and it's not clear this is all directed by him. But right. he's never tried to intervene to stop it. And in you know, recent months, it's gotten worse. That is unfortunate. And the thing is, you know, I, I live somewhere where Jehovah's Witnesses come a lot. And so it's that, you know, Saturday morning, uh, yes. you know, if, if, if you fell asleep downstairs uh, on the couch, they're going to wake you up uh, knocking on the door. But they've I, we've never had a problem with them or anything like that, other than we wish they wouldn't knock on our door. Uh, but, you know, that obviously doesn't rise to the level of terrorism. And it's this is also similar to non-religious stuff in Russia, like, you know, people that are proclaiming, you know, LGBT rights or protesting the abuses and excesses of the Putin administration. They're also being targeted. So it's pretty much anyone that doesn't fall into a very narrow line of what Putin would like to see or what the, I guess the Russian government would like to see, right. including, I guess, Jehovah's Witnesses who it would be argued that this is kind of a standard or at least an old school Christian take on your relationship with the state. You respect its existence, but you don't recognize it as an authority because you you only recognize one authority. And it seems like that's kind of, you know, biting them right now. But the irony is they don't resist. There's no active resistance. I mean, they don't hold protests. They don't stage tax resistance. I mean, it's like in the U.S., you know, I mean, they got in trouble because they refused to give the Pledge of Allegiance. Right. I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, it's not, you know, they didn't want to serve. I mean, they were willing to be 
you know, kind of do alternative service. They wouldn't serve you know, right. in the military in a military role. But that's kind of it. It's not as if these were active subversives. And right. that's what makes it such a tragedy is they're such a small group. They're very serious believers. I mean, these people were persecuted by the Nazis. I mean, you know, they ended up in concentration camps. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are very serious folks, and they're being punished for no reason. I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, it's, it is very unfortunate. And as you mentioned, uh, there are parts of the world, particularly in many uh, Muslim countries, where repression of other religions, uh, all the way to banning other religions, is oh, yeah. kind of standard fare. So we're focusing more on things that are uh, um, um, uh, new and divergent things that are happening. These are these are things that are kind of coming up and, and getting worse. In the, for example, Saudi Arabia, it's been the status quo from the beginning that, you know, if you, there's a very, very strict uh, what you can and cannot do, even as a foreigner uh, practicing a, a, a non-Sunni there religion. There's no open religion, religious practice by non-Muslims, and, you know, Shia Muslims are highly repressed. Yeah. And so, yep. so that and that's relative, you know, and, you know, basically conversion, apostasy, these things can get the death penalty. You know, this is right. fairly yeah. common in a number of countries. Yeah, they have a, a mild amount of tolerance of, uh, for example, like foreigners who are there for uh, energy sector jobs and things like that in their own territories and areas very power, quietly right. and, yeah, yes. very quietly in and humbly practicing. You don't cause trouble. You don't yep. tell anybody. It's fine. They won't bother you. But if you're any, if you're outside that protected uh, you know, kind of existence, then you're in, you're in trouble. Yeah, no, if you're if you're an actual Saudi, then no, you have to be a Sunni Muslim or you have or, to be very they, quiet about I mean, it. I mean, the, a lot of it's the foreigners, the people, the expatriates who are brought in. I mean, they bring in Filipinos, they bring in, I mean, there's some Pakistani Christians and others. You know, these are folks, Hindus. I mean, if you're that expatriate group, you get in real trouble if you try to worship separately. Right. And so speaking of Muslims in uh, Myanmar, or as some people know it as Burma, uh, we're seeing right now uh, that there is a, uh, a coup that has taken place. And I'm not sure, and you can give a little bit more about this. This is a coup that, did it ever really stop? Because my understanding was that the, the president was still active, the, the, I forget her name, the, the lady that they've deposed, she was still actively involved in continuing uh, the, the, uh, the repression, some would call it the genocide of the Rohingya Muslims, uh, of the Karen people. So, I mean, is, is this just uh, the same policy, but with the military face instead of the uh, elected official face? Or was there a break in that when she was in charge? It's complicated. I've actually done a lot of work with the Karen. I've been over the border many times. I mean, the good news is, you know, I mean, as of roughly a decade ago, the fighting stopped. I mean, I've been there when there was active combat. So most of the ethnic groups have had a fairly, you know, I mean, they've had a ceasefire that for the most part has held. Look, mm -hmm. in 1962 was the original military coup. The, the hunter ruled brutally, you know, for years, you know, back in... Um, the 80s, there was an election. Her party won it, uh, at which point the military voided the results. There were massive protests. She spent about 15 years in under house arrest. Uh, so back in around you know, 2010, they decided, and I, a lot of this is, the, I think the military, I mean, the general assessment is it's a very independent military. The Chinese embrace was very close because the U.S. and Europeans had sanctions, India and Japan had some involvement, but for the most part, they were very isolated. So China was their main benefactor and main trading partner. And that they were very uncomfortable with that. So the military decided to come up with a hybrid system. So the military had elections, 
they maintain control of kind of essentially the interior ministry, the defense ministry, and one of the other kind of it's basically the um, kind of border defense or what you know border control ministry. And right. they held twenty five percent of parliament. They got to a point, and you know then they ran the military separately, and then they had a civilian government. And what they did in the constitution was ban Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, f- from becoming president. They put in the provision that prevented anybody with a foreign relative from being president. But she had been married to a British man who died of cancer, and she still had two uh, British uh, citizen sons. So that it was put in there just to stop her. So they ended up, she ended up creating a new position as council, kind of state counselor that, as she explained, was above the president. So her party (laughs) won a big victory five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. The betting is the military thought that they were going to get a fractured parliament and that they could put together essentially a coalition and, and rule. And they didn't get that. And then last uh, November, there was another election. The part, you know, Her ruling party won an even bigger margin. Uh, the Rohingya, the military has been in charge. She basically defended them. You know, and actually at The Hague, there was a case and she went there to defend their conduct. How much of, I think what we found out was number one is she's a Burman nationalist. I mean, she's with the majority ethnic Burmese as opposed right. to the Korean, the Wa, the Chin, and all the other ethnic groups. Yep. yep. In the end, she is a nationalist. And I think that, and you know, that didn't mean she's not for democracy. It just means, well, guess what? She's not one of us. I mean, she's in the sense of she's not a liberal for whom, to, you know, that you would set aside the nationalism. Right. I wouldn't right, right. blame her for all of it. She didn't control the military. I assume part of that was a political judgment on her part. I mean, I do think she could have done more. I mean, there are a lot of journalists who've gone to jail. There are a lot of things where it strikes many of us that she, she did fail to give us much better democracy, but she's right. far better than the generals. So the, the view here is that the, the basically the, the ruling general wanted to be president and she basically told him to screw himself. You know, that the idea that she'd hand the presidency to him after he rigged the system, and now he's simply upset because he didn't get as much as he wanted. Uh, that he decided to move. And I think the other thing, the fact they won an even bigger margin told the military that, you know, that she and her party were winning, that right. it's going to be hard for the military to withstand successive, I mean, like 80% majorities, I mean, controlling parliament, having all the civilian offices, they decided they wanted to grab it back. And I think the end game was essentially the Thailand system, which was, they're going to disqualify her, disqualify the party, rig the, the political system, use everything to kind of make sure they win the votes they want, and then they hope they can rule through a fractured parliament. That's essentially what the Thai generals did. They staged a coup in 2014. They right. rigged the system, really cheated at every stage. So the junta the leader is now prime minister. Uh, it's not working out well. I mean, the, 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 the Mayan, you know, the Myanmar, the Burmese, you know, people are resisting. They've had you know, 18 people got killed a couple of days ago in protests. They're continuing. So it's a mess. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. Yeah. And obviously that's for the Burmese people. Then for the the, the ethnic minority groups like the Rohingya, who who are actually they're um, refugees who fled across the border into Bangladesh uh, uh, originally. So they're not only are they an ethnic minority, they're not actually native to Bangladesh, at least up until recently. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to see. How do you think, I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but do you think that this is going to be a people's revolt that overturns the junta or do they have the kind of power to just wait it out and until things calm down and just retain control? 
Well, the, I mean, the junta has been very bloody in the past. I mean, back in, I think it was 87, and then there was a revolt led by a lot of the Buddhist monks. I think it was 2007. Both of those had a lot of shooting and a lot of dead people. Um, what's One of the interesting things this time is that civil servants have gotten into it. Yeah, I mean, so basically you've had bank employees, you know, min and people at the different ministries refusing to do their work. So the government has had a hard time <clears throat> making, you know, the process work. If they right. continue that, I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's hard for the military to run everything if they get constant strikes and resistance. Uh, I mean, the problem is people have to feed themselves at some point. Right. I, I mean, I do think this is going to be a lot tougher. I mean, I'm worried that the military at some point just starts shooting. Uh, I mean, in the past, they had no hesitancy. We hoped over the last decade that we had a new crew who were less likely to do so. But everything I've heard about the Junta leader is bad. I mean, this is not you know kind of a friendly, warm and fuzzy guy. And the military right. is very independent, believes they should run things. So I, I worry. I mean, this this could get very, very ugly. And it's, it's not easy for the West to intervene. They put sanctions on military figures and military you know, commercial enterprises. But we don't have a lot of easy ways in there. And you don't have a lot of leverage because there hasn't because of years of sanctions and and, and separation between uh, the U.S. economy and the Bangladeshi one. There's not really much you can threaten um, when it comes. So there was uh, buried in the uh, many among the many provisions of the um, of the last uh, stimulus bill that was to pass at the end of last year was, I think, one hundred and fifty eight million dollars that was going towards. Uh, I, th I think it was fighting against gender and ethnic based violence. And I remember remarking, I actually posted it. I said, it sounds like the U.S. government is about to give like close to a quarter of a billion dollars to a military run government that has a history of. I don't know about specifically gender-based violence, I guess, except for what they do to their president, but, you know, of definitely ethnic based violence. Was that was there an actual plan behind that or was that just pissing money away that they knew was going to be used poorly? Well, look, the question of whether the, the Burmese government before the coup had capacity to use that money well, I mean, I'd be somewhat skeptical, but it right. was going to go to civilian ministry. That okay. is, in fact, you know, the National League for Democracy, that is Aung San Suu Kyi's party, controlled all the civilian ministries. And she acted as effective head of state. Even, I mean, there's a president, which she couldn't be, but then she's the state counselor who told the president what to do. So right. in that sense, the military didn't have direct control over it. I don't know if that money's been delivered. I think all you know, all aid you know have money has have been shut off at the moment. Right. So it's, you know, the U.S. government has tried to halt any kind of cash going in. I mean, the Europeans too. The Japanese are still involved. A number of companies are pulling out. I mean, who wants to invest where this whole place can go up in flames? But the military, look, the military. Like I said, I mean, 1962 was the coup. I mean, they basically spent 50 years isolated. <laughs> They're quite willing. They know what that. They know what they've gotten into. They're they know willing, what that's like. You know, they, don't yeah. Wanna, yeah. they don't want to be dependent on the Chinese, but they're willing to do it if they have to. And the right. Chinese, will, I think, will pick up the slack if they uh, believe it gives them political benefits. Well, and you know, going transitioning into the Chinese because that's that is 
it, it, a template for for what's happening in, in Bangladesh as well. Uh, there are many different things on on the front uh, of China that is you know very repressive of the Chinese people. One that's been uh, becoming more uh, prominent and spoken about at least in the Western world is the 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 repression or the crisis of the the Uyghur Muslim people who live in the I guess the north typically are in like Zhang, the north yeah, and northeast kind of north uh, northwest. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've heard reports of rape camps where they're basically eliminating the, the, the Uyghur people through uh, having Han Chinese men raping uh, Uyghur women to basically, you know, dilute their bloodline. Uh, you know, some have referred to it as a genocide. Our president has referred to it as a different cultural norm. What are what is your take on what's happening among the Uyghur? Because I've heard, especially in libertarian circles, I've heard everything from this is one of the worst things that's happening in the on the planet right now to this is you know neoconservative uh, imperialist propaganda against the Chinese government and it's way overblown. You know, what is your take on what's happening there? Look, it's it's hard to be too harsh on the Chinese government these days. I mean, I, one has to be very careful. Like, I'm very much against a Cold War. Like, I've been to China more than I've been to any other country, other than, okay. like, to German airports. I mean, if you count landing in Munich and Frankfurt onto somewhere else, I've been to Germany more. I've been to China at least 20 times. I've spoken okay. at universities there a dozen times. I mean, I've been on trips. I know I have friends there. I mean, I, China is a fascinating, fantastic, incredible culture. The, the government's bad. And I worry, like I've just been listening, there's a group, a left-wing dominated group that's kind of no Cold War and anti-war, which is good. It's trying to bring people together. But I'm right before we started, I've been listening, I'm transcribing some comments where you have people on the left who are basically whitewashing the Chinese government. Everything's wonderful. They're fabulous. And it's nonsense. I mean, it's simply nonsense. I mean, this is a regime under Xi Jinping. So we go back... I mean, it started getting harsh before that, but he became party secretary in 2012, president in 2013. He has, at almost every level, tightened control. And that means tightened control over the Internet, destroyed what had been an active human rights bar, wiped out independent journalists, a huge persecution against every religion, Christianity, Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, I mean, everything. Uh, Internet controls are far tougher I mean, this is, I mean, it's brutal stuff. And I've, and it's, it controls, little controls over academia. Uh, a year and a half ago, I showed up in Shanghai to give a presentation on U.S. Indo-Pacific uh, 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 kind of policy. I'd spoken mm-hmm. at this conference two years before. I showed up, this is 2019, and um, I was picked up at the airport Friday night, and the person picking me up said, oh, well, we found out yesterday that we can't have any foreigners speak without having gotten the approval of Beijing, which was impossible in the time they had. So right. guess what? No one's, we are doing tourism tomorrow. And I was the only American there, but there were Asians, the same thing. And then I was supposed to give an address to students on Sunday. And I, I met informally with some of the conference people at my hotel that day. I, right. And this, this is how there's some, we, we'd have a libertarian group that's spoken 10 years I've done it seven of them, uh, given at the School of Marxism at Northeastern University in Shenyang, we give free market economic seminars. Until 2019, the school invited us. We said yes. They brought us over and off we went. 2019, we had to file this big, long form, send photos, explain when we'd been to China, answer questions about you know, when, you know, what groups did we belong to. All of that was shipped off to the education department in Beijing. They had to decide to let us in. Uh, 
Cato for years worked with a group called the um, oh, uh, Uni Rule Institute. I mean, it was headed by a, a, a fellow named Mao, not Mao Zedong. It was a different family, but a family named family. <laughs> different, different Mao, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, they were always very careful. They didn't attack the Communist Party. They advocated free market economic reform. Mm-hmm. And for years, I mean, Cato gave them the Friedman Prize. I think it was back in 2012. So we, you know, our group that would do this, these teaching you know, every summer in Northeastern University, we typically do a conference with the Unirule Institute afterwards. These would be advertised. They would be open. People could come. I mean, again, we're all careful. I mean, like when we taught at the university, we never directly attacked the CCP. Students are smart enough. You talk about how the U.S. government screwed something up. We figure they can make connections. And right, off right, hours, right. you can talk about, I mean, I, and I've been asked, I was asking class about Gentleman Square. I mean, other stuff where you're like, oh boy. I mean, these students were willing to you know, ask questions. You know, Muni were like, in 2019, I went, uh, we, we were there, and then two of us, Barun Namitra, who's a, a wonderful free market Indian and, you know, economist and heads a small think tank in India. And I went out to see our friends. Well, they were kind of pushed to their third headquarters. They'd been kicked out of the first two in Beijing. And at that point, the executive director couldn't travel. Their books could not be published. And they were in the final stages of having their business license pulled. And shortly after we were there, they were closed down by the state. So stuff that, I mean, Xinjiang, I mean, I think it's real. Now, I, I, I worry about use of word genocide simply because it, like, these are not yeah. death camps and we're not killing people. So I, I always worry genocide and people use concentration camps. You think Nazis. I mean, you think, you know, Matt, I mean, you think you're, the, the Chinese, what the Chinese are effectively doing is trying to destroy Uyghur and Muslim culture. And this right. dates back roughly to 2017. There are some terrorist incidents. I mean, China does not say try to find the guilty parties. China says we must crush, you know, radical Islam. So the way we do right. that is to try to force all of these people no longer to be Muslims. Um, and I mean, it's, it's very repressive. I mean, people have applications on their phones. They get stopped at checkpoints. Police look at their phones. They've put Han Chinese into people's homes to essentially spy on them. You know, children have been taken from their parents. And the estimates are up to a million people in re-education, essentially camps, forced labor. You know, it's, you know, it's the, you know, we don't know for sure the numbers. And people have criticized some of the numbers. Like, I'm... Yeah. Who knows? I mean, right. You're trying to count that sort of thing. But we have lots of evidence. I mean, we have satellite footage of camps. We have anecdotal evidence. We have people who've escaped. We have fam- we have relatives around the world who've been pressured by their families and the Chinese government not to say anything lest bad things happen to their families. Right. This is real. So I think we have to understand is that what's going on in China is awful. Now, it doesn't mean we should go to war. It doesn't mean a Cold War makes sense. And it certainly doesn't mean isolate them. I mean, people complain and say, oh, everything failed, right? You know, we traded with them. They were supposed to become democratic. And so I, I would admit I was overly optimistic and others were as well. But I would argue that, in fact, Western engagement has been a great success. 1976, Mao Zedong dies. China was at the end point of the Cultural Revolution. I mean, if you want to read a horrible story, I mean, I'm reading a book right now, The End of the World. It's 700 pages long. It's on the Cultural Revolution. It was madness. It was a right. civil war. It was a purge. It was Mao Zedong at his lunatic worst. This That's is what- post 
this is post Great Leap Forward or during the Great yeah, Leap Forward? Yeah, this is post Great Leap Forward. Great okay, Leap Forward okay. was like 58 through 60 or something. So okay. Great Leap Forward killed tens of millions of people. Yep. It, yep. Uh, mass fam is such an, the same author wrote a book on the Great Leap Forward. So that's my next book. I mean, really, you know, fun reading these days. But <laughs> the uh, tens of millions of people died in that. It was so bad that the Communist Party cadre, you know, essentially forced Mao to back away on it. And he lost yep. authority because it was so awful. He used the Cultural Revolution, in a sense, to try to reestablish control. He started it in 66. It went on for roughly 10 years. You know, they, they fear at least a million people died in it. I mean, it was all over the country. I mean, it's fighting, it's factions. People, you know, a mob shows up and beat people to death. I mean, madness. This is 1976. Mao yeah. dies. He's gone. Other members of, the, of his clique, the Gang of Four, they called it, they're all arrested. Deng Xiaoping takes charge, and all of a sudden we do economic reform. And what you have is a China that suddenly grows economically. Yep. People have autonomy. I mean, when I first went there, I mean, they still, you know, trying to get married. You need state approval. Where you worked, you need state approval. I was there. My first trip was back in 92. They were finally getting out of that. So I would argue that what they got from that is rapid economic growth and expanded private you know, sector. Even politics with Tiananmen Square, I mean, there were real liberals and they lost. But it was always a looser system. Like, you know, universities can invite Westerners. We can right. have conversations. I mean, th there was a looseness there as long as you didn't directly challenge the uh, Communist Party. All of that, in my view, came out of kind of Western engagement. And Xi Jinping has reversed that. But look, the guy can, he, he can be gone tomorrow and then the world changes. Mao Zedong right. dies. His pictures are still there, but his ideology disappeared. It was wiped away almost instantly. So, so my view on this is it's critical that we be honest about what China is. And I know libertarians who are hesitant to do that because they're afraid it gives aid and comfort to hawks. But my right. reaction is if you want to defeat the hawks, you got to be honest about what you're facing. The last thing you want to do is kind of act as if you're some nitwit. No, everything's wonderful. It's not. I mean, it no, because really is not. I mean, I have Chinese friends. What the? I mean, this—it's a different world. What they say, how they talk, how they—it's—it's it's bad now. So let's not yeah. hide that. The question is, how do you help that? One of it is trying to break their censorship. Another is don't play nationalist games. I mean, Pompeo directly attacks the Communist Party. I hate the Communist Party, but if you're attacking it that way, you're much more likely to drive it and the people together. They're nationalists. They defend their government. No, I mean, how, so the question is, how do you appeal to young people who are kind of liberal? They're still nationalists, but they don't right. like government controls. We need to think strategically as opposed to, you know, kind of a blunderbuss approach and take into account where they are on human rights as well as everything else. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, going back to what you said in our zeal not to accept the uh, the narrative of the neocons and the war hawks, we need not just become anti-U.S. reactionaries, that if they yeah. say something is happening, then we just assume it isn't, because yeah. this... Govern this isn't a US problem of repressive governments that lie to the people. That is a government problem. China is an example of a repressive government that lies to its people and harms them as well. So we, we need to have a holistic approach to how we're looking. It's okay for both sides to be bad. This is not where there's a it's not a binary thing. And you know, when it comes to what's happening uh specifically with what you're talking about in China, 
this is also an, an example of how things are not static. You know, you talked about how coming out of the Cultural Revolution, there was this sort of gradual evolution towards better uh, conditions uh, uh, and more money for the for the people, more economic growth, rapid econo- hyper economic growth, as well as uh, growth, social growth, and being able to say more and being able to be more involved and being able to have more uh, freedom. And I I do believe that the war hawks that, as you said, like play the nationalist games. They want the CCP and the people of China to get more together. The, the whole point is to create that adversarial nature to justify the military-industrial complex, uh, embargoes, all of the things that they like. That This is part of the neocon, neolib world order is creating this sort of counter-nationalist uh, 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 balance and saber rattling uh constantly happening to justify spending trillions of dollars on on you know military increases and to keep a constant aggressive war footing around the world so you have this sort of two authority two increasingly authoritarian governments playing off of one another um we talk a lot about the repression of people in their own countries, right? So, you know, the Chinese people being oppressed in China. Uh, we talk about, we were talking about different people, uh, uh, Burmese people and, and other and ethnic minorities in uh, Burma that are being repressed and people in Russia that are being repressed, but in their countries. There's a concept of something called transnational repression where citizens of a country that aren't even in that country are being repressed uh, that very sh- common in China, Russia, Iran, Turkey. I would argue in the U.S. I think FATCA is a repression of Americans living abroad. That it doesn't matter where you earn your right. income, you better yeah. give double yeah. digits of it back to us, or we're going to make your life miserable even over there. Uh, but talk to me about what transnational repression is, and is that a new? It, has technology made that something where it's a new phenomenon, or is this something that's been around for a long time? Well, I think technology's made it a lot easier. Look, I mean, after the, the uh, Russian Revolution, I mean, you had a lot of white Russians in Europe and a number of them got assassinated. I mean, yeah. the, you know, I mean, Soviet agents went hunting down, you know, I mean, whether they be monarchists or Democrats or whatever else. I mean, and, we, and there are certainly throughout the Cold War. I mean, there's a famous case of, I think it was a Bulgarian dissident. I mean, I think, I don't remember if he's in London and was killed. I mean, it's like, you know, using this, you know, an umbrella that shot, you know, poison pellets into him, this kind of a thing. Yeah. That, you know, and, and there are cases where we, we were pretty certain that white Russians and others got kidnapped, almost certainly taken back to the Soviet Union. You know, so you had a bit of that. But of course, that's dicier stuff. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you have to physically have your agents there, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And in most of these cases, you know, it, the question is whether you had hostages or not. I mean, I think in most of these cases, you know, most of the family members who didn't make it out were probably dead. So, I mean, for the most part, you didn't have uh, you know, an, an ability to hold a family hostage. There was no leverage, see, right, right. That's right. That, I think, is what has really changed. I mean, you certainly see that with Iran and particularly with China. I mean, I mean, lots of cases of Uyghurs where, you know, I mean, you get people here will say, you know, my family doesn't want to talk to me anymore. You know, or my family has asked me not to do any activism. There have been cases. There was one I yesterday, there was actually a webinar over there talking about this. A, a woman coming on saying, you know, that she held off saying anything. I mean, a, a sister of hers disappeared and then her sister was sentenced to like 17 years in prison for something. And she said at right. that point, OK, I, I mean, I'm going to speak out. So I think that they're more vulnerable now. And we even have cases where it appears of them sending people to America or using people already in America to kind of talk to and to 
try to coerce and frighten, you know, people. And to me, that's one of those things where, I, I mean, this is where I think we need united, you know, kind of cooperation. That is the U.S., Europeans, Asian democracies. I think this is one of those areas. I think another one is like websites. I mean, you know, China tells United Airlines on your website in America, you can't list Taiwan. Right. My reaction is, look, you can whatever you want to do in China. I mean, I don't like it, but you, you can do it, but not here. And so the to me, these are areas where it makes sense for democratic countries to come together and say, okay, we got a problem here. We cannot let them do this to us. Right. And what do we do about it? And if we all work together, and to me, then suddenly you have real leverage where all the Western countries say no. If you do that, X happens, whatever X is. Uh, but I think it has gotten worse. I mean, I th and I think that's the vulnerability of fairly large expatriate populations and the technology of following people online, of you know checking what they've been saying. I mean, all of these things have made it easier then for a state like China to watch, to get in communication with, to threaten, you know, those sorts of things. So I, I think it's a real problem. So one example that comes up of not just transnational repression of citizens in other countries, but citizens of other countries in other countries, one is uh, China basically telling a lot of the entertainment industry, if you want to be able to, uh, you know, sell your movies here, not only can your movies that are here, that, that we have here, not have anything negative about us, you can't ever say anything negative about us anywhere or we're not going to allow it here which is kind of what you're talking about they're now repressing here using basically the power of the purse that leverage that they have uh so no it, it is a major problem so up until now we've complained a lot <laughs> we've talked a lot about all the problems that we are facing and i'm going to complain one more time because for anyone who said well that's okay because back here in the good old us of a we're free as can be yeah no not so much so uh it turns out that uh, according to freedom house uh, we've seen a roughly 10%, 11 point, actually just over 10%, 11 point decline uh, in our level of freedom in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, the three major factors being increasing political corruption and conflicts of interest, uh, lack of transparency in government, uh, and punitive in immigration and asylum policies. And, and, and to be clear, this is not a Trump problem. This is not an Obama problem. This is not a Republican or Democrat problem. This is, I call it a Republicrat problem. This is a U.S. government policy, uh, you know, neoliberal slash neoconservative uh, centrist world order policy problem uh, that has led to it. Now, with a few minutes to go, since we've complained this whole time, let's talk some solutions. What are the things that you think need to be done? And you and, and this can be at the individual level, the advocacy level, or even at the government level that can be done to work towards us being freer here in the States and also to work towards creating more freedom. I think we agree that, you know, liberating the world through uh, uh, military policy certainly isn't the way. So what is the way? Right. Well, I think domestically, it requires an active citizenry who cares. I mean, ultimately, we get the government that, if not necessarily what we deserve, but we get the government that in some ways we accept or we acquiesce to. That right. uh, we have to hold public. I mean, public officials don't believe they can have you know, adult conversations with us. We are bankrupt and we're spending money wildly. Well, who's going to pay? I mean, the, the, we're already over, you know, debt is 100 percent of GDP. You know, by yep. mid-century, CBO says it could be 150 or 200 percent. Well, you know, Greece was something like 140 percent when it blew up. Yep. I mean, mm -hmm. we need to have a conversation about, well, what are you willing to spend money on? And, and if you want to spend, you got to tax. I mean, you just can't. 
you know, so it strikes me that we need citizens who take the citizenship seriously and, you know, say that, there, you know, there's no free lunch. I mean, Milton Friedman had that right. And then we have to talk to public officials and make decisions. And we, you know, we can't do it. And it strikes me it ultimately comes back and people have to, there are trade-offs. There's uh, everything. I mean, freedom, responsibility, money, you know, programs, you know, there's nothing free here. So to me, that's kind of the starting point for us. And we have to be willing to accept some cost. If we want freedom, we're going to have to pay for it. I mean, it requires us to be vigilant. It requires us to, right. you know, be willing to make certain sacrifices to protect the system, uh, you know, that we have. I think internationally, I mean, one thing we need to do is as much as we can is use individuals as well as government. I tell people the best ambassadors for America are citizens. I mean, the point is, for the most part, people around the world like Americans. And most of those people hate the U.S. government. And for very good reasons, frankly. And when it's off bombing people, invading, killing people, yep. I mean, doing a lot of sanctioning people, starving them to death. I mean, the U.S. government does a lot of awful stuff. And the Chinese have pointed this out. I wrote a column for antiwar.com saying, look, let's be very frank. Since the Cultural Revolution, that is, you know, after the Cultural Revolution on, the Chinese have done nothing as harmful as the Iraq War. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis are dead because of U.S. Yep. policy. We didn't kill them. We blew the place up. The Chinese have not done anything like that. They've done lots of bad stuff, but if you, you know, they didn't blow it up. They didn't create al-Qaeda and ISIS, which yep. our policy yep. did. They all this stuff, we need to we need to own this. You know, we have to we so we have to accept responsibility for our own actions. Then we have more credibility in criticizing, you know, China. So I think part of it is getting people active. I mean, you know, things like the Olympics. I mean, the Olympic Committee is not going to take the Olympics away, but we need to work with other countries. For example, governments should boycott. No heads of state, no heads of government should go. No royalty should go. We you know, we should suggest that athletes who go there. They use the opportunity to protest, use the opportunity to highlight abuses. You know, be careful. I mean, you don't want to start, you know, get yourself arrested. But you can imagine you win some event and the microphone's in front of you. I mean, you can say something that we should yeah. look for ways to use the opportunity to embarrass, you know, the Chinese government. And I do think cooperation, you know, I mean, the problem with the Trump administration was that, you know, we just order everybody to do things and they don't do it for good reason. We need to sit down, you know, with countries and say, again, how do you deal with the pressure put on companies? It's very hard to tell a Hollywood studio that you should, you know, not listen to them and lose money. Well, what's what we need to do is then try, how do you get an industry to work together? You may need an antitrust exemption. You know, how do we work, you know, across countries? How do we, you know, I mean, the best thing you can do to the Chinese is say all the Western airlines together have a policy. We do our websites and you stay out of it. And if you want to kick one of us out, you kick all of us out, that kind of a thing. So how do we build, right. to me, that's what we, and th th we can help on that. We can't make it happen, but that's something. And then I think that's where you want awareness of the problems. You want an active citizenry. You need, and this is, needs to be bipartisan. It's not blame one party. Both parties have this issue. This is something all Americans and good people around the world should want to do. How do you help Chinese people? And this is, you know, it's not a part of, to me, you don't want it being led by the U.S. government on a crusade against China. You want yes. it led by people who say terrible things are being done to the Chinese people. We want to work with them. We want to help them. And you work together as opposed to this is our effort because you know, Donald Trump's mad about trade or something. It's not going right. to be easy, but I do have hopes that, you know, we could get people together because 
You know, China is a serious challenge. And I, I say it's a challenge. This is not war. This is not the Soviet Union. It's not a Cold War. It's a very different thing. But we have to take it seriously. But we also well, you know, have to take into account it's important to engage in all these other things. This is, you know, and we need to be careful about this, but I think we can win it. And I have a lot of confidence in America and Western countries. I mean, I think we have fundamental strengths, but we're going to have to work at it. And as you said, it's hard to get anywhere until we clean up our own house. Yeah. If we're engaging in, and I say we, I mean our government, if we continue to be robbed to pay for an imperialist government to spread havoc around the world and create terror groups and engage in mass murder and targeted killings and you know, uh, uh, you know, holding people in Gitmo without trial until they die, uh, as long as we're doing that, or as long as our government is doing that, then we and our government look like hypocrites telling anyone else that they shouldn't do anything, which immediately cuts and curtails our ability to be able to affect things abroad. That's why we have to vote libertarian. You didn't say that. I did. Um, but so yeah, I vote so, libertarian. So no worries. <laughs> OK, well, then he said it, too. That's why you got to vote. Liber so number step number one, vote libertarian. So, mm -hmm. Doug, thank you so much for coming on. You have been uh, a fascinating guest. And uh, this has been a really interesting discussion. It's interesting in the way that like talking about you know, like a, a serial killer is interesting. It's like a horrific, terrible thing, but it's interesting to talk about. And it's good for us to know that these things are happening so we can talk about how to, how to fight against it and combat it. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to have the final word. You can say whatever you want to say, whatever you thought we didn't get a chance to talk about, uh, promote any upcoming, anything you're doing, plug yourself and all of this, all of your various wares, uh, whatever you want to say, as long as you want to say it, Doug Bondo, the floor is yours. Well, obviously, I'd love to have people, you know, check me out on Twitter, you know, go to the Cato Institute website. It has most of what I write, has a lot of forums that I've been in, policy papers that I've written. I write regularly for antiwar.com. I want to talk that up. Eric Garris and the crew out there, Scott Horton, do fabulous work. It's an effort to try to, they really, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, to counteract the war party, counteract the neoconservatives. You know, yes. they, they operate on a shoestring, but they're hardcore. They're very principled. American Conservative is an interesting publication. It's not libertarian. It doesn't pretend to be, but they're very open. I write for them weekly. National Interest. I even write for American Spectator, National Review Online. You know, whoever is out there, I want to get the message out. I promote liberty. So I'd love to have people look for my writings and you know, look for uh, webinars and stuff. But again, Cato website's probably the best place. and has a lot of other good work on it. I have a lot of very fine colleagues, people who work very hard. On civil liberties, you know, drug legalization, on you know how to deal with police abuse, uh, you know, legal reform, constitutional reform, as well as foreign policy deregulation. So we'd love to have people visiting us. And you know, hey, if you have a little extra money, throw it Cato's way. Awesome. So Doug Bondo, you're on Twitter. Is it at Doug Bondo? Yeah, it's like it's like D Bondo. I mean, they put my name in, you know. In, if they in type Doug Bondo, then they'll find you. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. the beauty is, as far as I could tell when I was doing some research on you, there's only one Doug Bondo. So if you type in Doug Bondo, you're going to find this That's specific Doug Bondo. That makes it a lot easier. So check him out on Twitter. Check him out on antiwar.com, cato.org, uh, National Interest, Fortune, American Conservative, all the others that he was saying. Um, Doug, again, thank you so much for coming on. And like Doug said, vote libertarian. He did say it. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Happy to been on. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you. I'm back. It's me. I'm back. Wasn't that great? Doug Bondo is fantastic. That was a really great, uh, great discussion about transnational repression and uh, 
and uh, religious persecution. Uh, a couple times it was mentioned in the comments, well, you know, we also do that stuff here, or maybe not as bad, but we also are abusive to people here and very abusive to people around the world. Well, yeah, we know that. That's not anything new. Uh, we talk about that quite a bit. Uh, we don't talk a lot about foreign policy on this show because I think it's more important, as we said at the end of, of the interview with Doug, that it, we really need to clean up our house uh, before we can go around and tell others what they should be doing. But I, I did think it was important to have that opportunity to, to see what is going on in other countries. Um, so before I go, I'm, I guess I can take a couple of questions. If any of y'all have any questions, I'll take maybe two or three questions and then we will wrap things up. So, uh, he is, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Connor, I don't know if he's on, um, if he's on Facebook, I didn't find him on Facebook, but he is on Twitter. It's, uh, at Doug underscore Bondo. Um, and, uh, Brian has it in the, in the comments. I'll, I'll put it up in the main comment so everyone can see it, but it's, uh, Twitter at Doug underscore Bondo. I'm putting up, putting that up right now. That is not, it made it into a Facebook link. There we go. Um, so yeah, so no, that was a really good episode. And if anyone has any questions, I can answer one or two questions. And if not, then I'm going to go eat because I have some really, really good air fried salmon that's waiting for me. And I am very, very excited. Why is this coming up like this? Ah, because I wrote Dave. Okay, ignore that last one. Let me put it in again. I can't believe I put Dave. Yeah, I'm not, okay, I won't stab myself. Um, you're right though. This is how excited I was last time, Justin, when I, when I got the food and it, yes, it was Sam. And I was like, ah, and the thing is, I don't know why I brought the, the knife up to my face. I've never done that before. It was just very excited in that moment. Um, uh, so here's some questions. Did you hear Texas opened up fully? Yes. Uh, and I'm... <laughs> So I'm, I'm split on this because it's good that they're open. Uh, I also, but I don't like the presumption that the governor ever had the authority to do such a thing in the first place. Uh, so that I'm kind of torn on that. It's like, yay, the governor is allowing us to go outside again. It really should have ended with that authority not being recognized uh, either by the courts or, or in some manner, or even just the people refusing to obey it. Uh, that would have been preferred to, because now... The governor and future governors of Texas and other states that are that are, are pulling back on these restrictions, they're basically saying, yeah, we can do this again if we want to. And that's not good. Uh, Bill Robichaud says, have you been reading Scott Horton's new book? I have not yet, but we are working on getting Scott on the show. Um, I, I really want to get Scott's per perspective on, on what's going on with the Uyghurs um, because uh, he is very upset about the, the, the way that it's being talked about in uh, Western, but especially American media. Um, let's see. Uh, Chris Nelson says, I dislike the CCP, but I'm not sure playing nice with them is effective. How to be hard on them without advocating war. It's not an issue of being hard or not hard on them. And, and the reality is we're not playing nice. We're in a trade war with them. Uh, our previous and now current CIA directors are all but declaring war in the, in terms of the way that they talk about the CCP. And again, as Doug said, we don't like 
communists. We don't like the CCP and we don't like the Chinese government. But when you attack a country, so for example, if a foreign government head or the or head of their intelligence agency or head of their military attack the U.S. government, attack the U.S. and say the Americans are doing this, we naturally come together and say, hey, screw you, pal. We're Americans. We do even like when we get criticized by Europe. Right. They're talking about legitimate things about our government. But if they're phrasing it, well, you know, the Americans, blah, 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 blah. And then we hear, oh, you know, Europeans are saying bad things about Americans. And we naturally come together and go, hey, screw you, pal. That's what's happening in China. When we're saying all this stuff about, you know, oh, well, we're against the Chinese doing this and doing that. When it's coming from the government, it comes off as, oh, they're saying this about all Chinese people. So that's not helping. The trade wars aren't helping. Uh, we've talked a lot about trade wars uh, on this program. Uh, the reality is that when your government issues tariffs and fees and regulations on trade they're taxing you your government is taxing and punishing you for trying to get the most affordable product that you can and not only are they taxing you but it doesn't work if you are for example and i've used this example many times if you own a company that makes large durable goods like so let's say like air conditioners or refrigerators and you rely on raw materials and uh, partial materials like semiconductors and things like that to, that go into your machine that are made in other countries like China and Mexico and things like that, that's how you're able to affordably make it here. Now, if suddenly there's tariffs on it, now you can't sell it for the same price as your foreign competitors. Now you have to pay more because you're a US-based business. That leaves you with two options. You can either jack up the price, which makes you less competitive, you can knock down your profit, which hurts your, your company and your shareholders. Uh, and you were probably operating on razor thin margins to begin with. Uh, you can start laying off people and automating, but A, that's not really going to help in the short term. And B, now you're creating fewer jobs and leading to more joblessness. Or you just move overseas where you're not subjected to those tariffs anymore. Tariffs and trade wars make things worse for us. And yes, they engage in it too, and it makes it worse for them. Uh, the uh, original world wars that happened post-Great Depression happened largely because of a global depression that started with, among other things, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, which led to global trade wars starting in the U.S. and in Europe and going around the world. When countries aren't trading goods and services, they typically start trading bombs and missiles. So it's it's this is an issue of... The best way to do this is to, first of all, clean up our own house. It's hard for us to criticize another country's government for being repressive when our government is engaged in an imperial endless war campaign around the world, creating terror groups, funding drug cartels, doing some of the most disgusting things around the world, and then saying, yeah, it's bad what you're doing in your country too. Yeah, we sound like massive hypocrites, or at least our government sounds like hypocrites. So number one, clean up our government's act so that we actually can come from a position of actually not sounding like massive hypocrites and ignoring the, the planks in our own eyes when we're trying to remove the specks from others. And then from there, we can actually start being a force for freedom. But we have to actually be a force for freedom. We just can't stamp freedom on the side of a cruise missile and go, look, we're for freedom. No, it's just as stupid as trying to stamp... You know, people have been joking about now that Biden's in office, they're going to stamp, you know, trans rights flags and Black Lives Matter on the side of a missile and that'll make it OK. No, it doesn't. But slapping freedom and, and, and patriotism on the side of it doesn't make it OK too. Uh, make it OK either. So, you know, end those things 
and be an actual force for good around the world and a force for freedom, now we can actually start talking. Um, let's see. Um, let's see. Did you hear that while the news suggested that legislators were going to take away Cuomo's dictator powers in New York, the Democrats actually just extended them and had Cuomo in on the discussion? That doesn't surprise me at all, honestly. I haven't been following it, uh, but the um, Cuomo is in a really bad place. Uh, and interestingly enough, it might be his aggressive behavior to women, which is terrible, that will end up getting him removed, not the fact that he put COVID patients in nursing homes and led to, uh, what, 13, 14,000 that we know of dying as a result of his bad policy and then lying about it to state and federal investigators. No, it's going to be that he was touchy with women, which again, terrible thing. The things he has said to women and the just the being a creepy, you're like in your 50s and you're being creepy with women that could easily be your daughter's age, a couple of maybe even your granddaughter's age. And I mean, it's really disgusting and creepy but she also killed a bunch of people and then lied about it so on the scale of things um so he's got a fight in in for it for him I, i'm not sure how it's gonna lead to um uh alexandra uh alexander robinson i don't know if it's alexandra or alexander but uh alex uh says i would argue that COVID 19 is because of the ccp shouldn't they be punished for lying and covering up what was supposed to be a local pandemic into a global pandemic for that matter we don't know that it wasn't accidentally leaked from a lab they actually didn't uh, negotiated with the world health organization for nearly a year before they let them in and the world health organization immediately upon entering said we're not even going to investigate that uh because it's not likely okay well why wouldn't you still investigate the possibility of it sounds to me like that was a condition of them even being allowed in now it could have very well been naturally zoonotic occurrence as a result of the uh wet markets where the different animals are all in together or whatever we really don't know in terms of punishing them how you can boycott them but i you know sanctions hurt you and as a consumer and they hurt everyday Chinese people. They don't really hurt the government. In fact, they help the government to rally everyone around them and say, look at how they're, what they're doing to us. Uh, it hasn't worked in Cuba. It didn't work in Iraq. It doesn't work when it's used. The only thing it does is successfully cut ties between countries, which makes it that much easier for them to lead us to depersonalize each other, which makes it more likely for us to end up at war with each other. And I can guarantee you, you do not want war with China. You do not want war with China. That's not one that stays over there. That that China is not uh, Iraq after years of no-fly zones. China is not Afghanistan uh, after years of being ravaged by the Taliban. China is a uh, is a, a first-world military that rivals ours. That that would not stay there by any stretch of the imagination. You you don't want that. Um, uh, Hannah Golem Golematis. Glematis, I, I'm sorry. Hannah says, I feel like we're encouraging slave labor in other countries because it's cheaper. Well, it's it's actually because it's more expensive here. And that's because of all of the various regulations and fees and taxes that have been put on American labor in order for large businesses to stifle their smaller competition because they always knew they could just move their base of operations overseas and leave the, 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 the wells so poisoned here that it's unaffordable to do business here and, and compete with them. So you get rid of those regulations. Not only does that help things here, but it also helps things overseas. Uh, it helps. That's actually a great way to punish China is simply get, deregulate the market here uh, so that more jobs come back and, and grow uh, here 
and uh, it's cheaper to make things here. It becomes more affordable to do business here, more affordable to hire people here, more affordable to make things here. That helps with the problem with with China because uh, they're not as rich with you know with our with our money uh, from them being more affordable than us. Um, it also helps with jobs here. It helps with the economy here. It helps with the environment because we have more products being made here uh, instead of being made on the other side of the planet and shipped over here. So that that reduces the amount of pollution and the carbon footprint and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah. So that's actually a great way to, to, to help. Let's see what else is here. Uh, Cuomo said he definitely wasn't going to resign. I don't think he was going to resign. Um, uh yeah, I'm full. Alexander, I, I hope I'm saying your name right. I'm fully behind uh, not paying them back. Uh, the uh, the whatever debt can be uh, a whatever whatever treasury bonds can be traced to being owned by Chinese owned banks. Just don't pay it back. That's fine. Uh, and and for that matter, we could also write off because there's a, a certain amount of I think it's just under a trillion dollars that the that Chinese government technically owes the U.S. government. Uh, from during lend lease during uh, I believe during World War II and uh, but the Chinese government doesn't recognize that de debt because it was run up by the Chiang Kai-shek government um, so yeah just write that amount off of, of what we owe them as well but yeah no we could just not pay them back um, let's see uh, what do you think about Biden stopping oil fracking uh, I'm not aware that he stopped it completely. I think he had stopped leases on uh, oil fracking on uh, new new leases on oil fracking. Um, uh, here's what I think about oil fracking, to be perfectly honest. The reason that we are still using fossil fuels as heavily as we are is because there is a renewable and or not renewable, but highly plentiful. Incre it is the cheapest it is the most carbon neutral, it is the most effective, it is the most steady, and it is the safest form of energy, and it's called nuclear. And the reason that we don't have more new nuclear power plants is because federal regulations and even some state regulations have made it entirely cost prohibitive to build any new nuclear plants for like the past like at least 30 something years. If they had more nuclear, if they were allowed to have more nuclear, uh, and, and, and you don't have to have a government program. You don't have to subsidize it. Just get rid of the regulations, put them on even footing with everyone else and the subsidization of fossil fuels and the subsidization of renewables and just deregulate uh, to nuclear to the same level as every other type of energy. And you will see many new nuclear plants, including new and more uh, uh, efficient and safer plants like thorium salt reactors. Uh, there are so many really exciting things in the, in the field of nuclear that uh, are safer, that have a much uh, shorter uh, um, uh, radioactive half-life than the, than the old forms did, that are just better all the way around. They're smaller, so you can have them in more areas. Uh, it's easier to uh, clean up after them. You can have them in a spot. Actually, the, the, the waste portion is portable, can be removed off-site very safely, so it doesn't even leave any, you know, any uh, uh, radiation in that area in the groundwater. You can actually switch out cores so you can perpetually have nuclear energy. Uh, you would see the cost of energy in general go down to a fraction of what they are now.
now, you would see things like electric cars completely take over the car industry because it would be exponentially more affordable to have an electric car than a gas car. So all this stuff about increased regulations that drive up the cost of things, this is the opposite way to go. When you deregulate and you allow the market to innovate by getting off their damn backs and letting them do what they do, then you end up with far better solutions like nuclear. And that allows having much more, more plentiful, safer, and cheaper energy allows for the next generation of energy to come out like fusion, like these things we're seeing, um, uh, solar panels that will be up in the, in the atmosphere of, or, up, or in orbit where they're outside of the atmosphere, where they can collect exponentially more power and beam it to certain remote locations. All of these things become better and cheaper and more easily attainable when the source of energy that is needed for all that research and production and, and, and development and everything that has to go into it is exponentially cheaper. Nuclear allows that to happen. And all we have to do is get the government off the market's back. Um, take one more question, then we'll close out. Um, do, 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 do. Here we go. Um, uh, what about China's debt? Uh, Brian asked, what about China's debt trap diplomacy that they have been using on poor African and South Asian countries, loaning them large sums of money for crap infrastructure projects and then leveraging that debt against them when they can't pay to take ports and land? Is there a way we can diplomatically or strategically counter this to protect poor nations without any aggressive responses? The, the number one thing we could be doing, Brian, is if we got the Right now, when you want to do any kind of diplomacy or any kind of um, anything related to uh, diplomatic types of commerce in foreign country, there are actually regulations against that. You have to actually go through the State Department and, you know, put together a white paper and get approval for them to do it because it's considered diplomatic. And you have to make sure you're not going, you're not stepping on the feet of the U.S. government's foreign policy. If we simply let them do this. A lot of these projects are garbage, but no one's really engaging these developing economies in, in, a, in, a, in a robust way. So China comes in and says, hey, here's a boondoggle plan. It's going to make you billions of dollars. Just sign here on the dotted line. These countries that don't have experience with this go, okay, fine. They sign up. They don't have any other alternative. Again, deregulate. Allow businesses and nonprofits and NGOs and organizations here to be able to engage in this kind of diplomatic uh, market opening commerce in other countries without having to get State Department and U.S. aid approval. Uh, and you will see a blossoming trade in these developing countries. They have the money. They have money. They have increasing amounts of money. They have uh, um, emerging economies. And they're like you said, they're getting sucked up in these garbage programs. Um, and then they're and then they're being leveraged with a, a bunch of debt that they have to pay off. So give them a better alternative. Just give them a better alternative. They're just looking for something to do, honestly. Um, there we go. Did the Jewish space laser do this? Yeah. No, I it's. I clearly can't be trusted around steak knives. Thirty-eight years of eating, I've never stabbed myself. I don't. Anyway, uh, so folks, I guess we'll we'll, we'll end up on what we'll, we'll end on space laser. Sure, let's do that, folks. Thanks so much again for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. I hope you enjoyed it. This format was kind of cool. I got to like, you know. I already had it pre-recorded, so I was able to just do that and, and hang out with you all in the comments. That was kind of cool. Um, so uh, thank you. Thanks again so much for tuning in. 
Uh, join me next week uh, at, on Tuesday for the next episode of The Muddied Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the uh, sweet little 2020 Wonder Boys that we are, and we will talk about all the stuff that happened uh, since the previous time that we got together. Then come right back here on Wednesday, same spike place, same spike time for the next episode of My Fellow Americans. I will have on Josh Eagle and Justin Cornett. They have a new organization called For All Tennessee. They are doing some incredible stuff in the state of Tennessee, um, incredible legislative uh, accomplishments incredible legislative goals and uh, as they're working on it we'll eventually hopefully be able to expand it across the country Uh, but they're doing great work in Tennessee already what kind of great work tune in next week and you'll find out Uh, but folks thanks again so much for tuning in I will talk to you very very soon and I was going to say the thing that I say on muddy waters of freedom I don't say that on this instead what do I say on this gosh oh I say hey folks thanks again so much for tuning in I'm Spike Cohen and you are the power. Thanks for tuning in, guys. God bless. Watch!